Anselm of Canterbury uh, is known for a famous question, cured Deus Homo, why the God-man? Why the God-man? The question is important because the answer strikes at the heart of who Jesus is and what God has done in Jesus to save us. We needed a Savior who was man. The human race stands guilty and cursed with death because of the first man, Adam. He disobeyed God. We too have sinned in our flesh and are accountable to God's punishment as humans. In order to save us, God had to provide a Savior who was truly man, a new Adam, to obey where the first one failed. A true man who's tempted in every way, yet without sin. A human substitute to die for human sinners because the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive. But we also needed a Savior who was God. Our sin offends the God of infinite worth. God's justice demands that we pay a penalty fitting to that crime against His infinite worth. And to satisfy the demands of God's justice against sinners, a payment of infinite value was necessary. But only God is of infinite value. Only God satisfies God. In order to save us, God had to provide a Savior who was also truly God. And in the person of Jesus, we find this very Savior. Jesus is not merely man, He is the God-man. And hopefully our Advent series has strengthened uh, your confession that Jesus is true God from true God. This makes Jesus way more unique than people usually accept. You know, many don't have a problem saying that Jesus is unique. But when they say he's unique, all they mean is that he's about as unique as every other religious leader is unique. But if we take John's Gospel and Revelation seriously, nobody can really describe Jesus' uniqueness like that. Not only does John come out and and say that Jesus is God, the Word was God, he, he uses the Old Testament's categories reserved for God and then applies them directly to Jesus. In the Old Testament, Yahweh isn't but one God among many other possible gods to choose from. Yahweh was, uh, he has what some have called transcendent uniqueness. He's in a class all by himself. He's, he's the only God, and all the other so called gods are just posers created by man. Yahweh alone is creator, ruler, judge, savior. And yet, John doesn't hesitate to apply the same functions to Jesus. Meaning John places Jesus in that category of transcendent uniqueness. He's in a class all by himself. He's distinct in person from God the Father, yes. But he shares in the one divine being. He is truly God. And last time we looked at four ways Revelation unveils Jesus' Godhood. Jesus' words are God's very words. Various metaphors and motifs reserved for God alone in the Old Testament get applied to Jesus. And then also Jesus the Lamb receives worship reserved for God alone. 
One further way Revelation unveils Jesus' divine glory is by equating Jesus' mission with God's mission. God's coming to establish His kingdom on earth transpires in Jesus' coming. And I want to look at five different places that John says this or, con- or conveys this in the book of Revelation. Uh, first, God's coming frames Jesus' coming in the salutation. Um, God's coming frames Jesus' coming in the salutation. Revelation is a prophecy, uh, but its format is a letter. A letter to be circulated and read among all the churches. And common to any letter is a salutation, where you address the persons you're writing to. In verse 4, John addresses the seven churches in Asia like so. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now notice how the salutation begins and ends with the same title. The one who is and who was and who is to come. This is a reflection on God's covenant name in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. At the burning bush Moses asked God if the people say what is his name, you know, what shall I tell them? And God replies, I am who I am. Or... I am the one who is. Now some have suggested the name speaks to to God's eternal existence. God simply is. But in the context of Exodus 3.12, God reassures Moses, Surely I will be with you. In other words, God's covenant name means more than His existence. It also expresses that He is and will be. With his people. And that becomes even clearer as John reflects on the divine name here. He combines three verbal forms to emphasize God's immediate past and future presence working for his his people. He's the one who is, meaning I am the God who is with you now. He, He then moves to the one who was to emphasize his presence with his people throughout history. And then finally we get the one who is coming to emphasize how this same God is in the process of coming to save them. But there's something further to note about that last piece in the divine name, the one who is coming. Throughout the Old Testament, God is known as the one who is coming, whether it's to save his people or to judge uh, his enemies. At the end of time, God is the coming one. Psalm 96.13 All the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. 
Isaiah 35, verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Hosea 6.3, Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Habakkuk 2.3, which is pretty significant since it also gets applied to Jesus in Hebrews 10.37. But it goes like this, For still the vision is for a time, and it shall spring forth for the end and, and not for vain. If he should delay, wait for him, for the coming one will come and will not delay. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Zechariah 14, 5. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. God is coming to judge and he is coming to save is the message of the Old Testament. He's, he's known throughout the Old Testament as the one who is to come. That's who he is. However, within the framework of God's coming here, John inserts a litany of clauses celebrating Jesus. We find Jesus' past redeeming work. He is the faithful witness. He has washed us with his blood. He is the firstborn from the dead. We also find Jesus' present reign. He is the ruler of kings on earth. And then finally, we we find Jesus' future return. Verse 7, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now the main element to observe is this, sandwiched between uh, the the, the God who is coming in verse 4 and verse 8 is John saying, behold, Jesus is coming. So by framing Jesus' coming between God's name as the coming one, John is urging us to see God's coming in Jesus' coming. God comes for his people and to establish his kingdom in the coming of Jesus. Even better, in verse 7, John pulls from Zechariah 12.10 and Daniel 7.13 to describe this coming. And both passages present a divine messianic figure who achieves God's end time salvation and judgment. Both passages get, to apply, get applied to Jesus here, meaning Jesus is that divine Messianic figure saving and judging. So God's coming frames the Lord Jesus is coming in the salutation. Next, we see that God is the coming Lord, and yet so is Jesus. Uh, I draw that conclusion from rereading verse 8 in light of its counterpart in chapter 22. Verse 20, read verse 8 again. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the Almighty speaks as the Lord God, and then he identifies himself as he who is to come. But watch this in chapter 22, verse 20. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And then the encouraged prayer is, amen, come Lord Jesus. And so Lord is used for both God the Father and Jesus Christ. 
And even more, God is the Lord who is coming and Jesus is the Lord who is coming. Now, how do those two fit together? It's not that we have two separate lords with two separate comings. Rather, the Lord God's coming is revealed in the Lord Jesus' coming. Jesus is one with the Father in lordship such that Jesus' coming unveils the coming of God expected and anticipated all throughout Scripture. Uh, look next at Revelation eleven fifteen. This is the uh, seventh trumpet judgment. It follows the seven seals. It anticipates the seven bowls. And the way these sets of seven work is they run you all the way to the end. And then they step back and run you to the end again with, with more detail than, than before. So since it's the seventh trumpet, we're at the end of time once again. And, 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 and here John sees God's final victory over the beast's kingdom. He says... Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And then verse 17 you get in verse 17 you get this uh, praise to the Lord God almighty who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And so the words in verse 15, he shall reign forever and ever, most likely align with the Lord God Almighty, who is reigning in verse 17. But how remarkable is it that the kingdom of the Lord God Almighty equally belongs to his Christ? In other words, the reign of God is becoming manifest in the reign of his Christ. And that's even clearer when, we, when you consider what we, what we talked about last week with Jesus bearing God's title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or Jesus and God sharing the one throne of glory. So basically, God's reign becomes manifest in Jesus' reign. Next, I want to look at uh, the way John pulls from Isaiah 40, verse 10. In Revelation 22, verse 12, I'll read uh, Isaiah 40, verse 10 first. And I uh, forgot to tell you, most of these will be on the screen today. So uh, if you don't want to flip there, they're on the screen. Basically, Isaiah anticipates a final coming of Yahweh to judge the world. And he says this, Behold the Lord, the Lord is coming with strength, and His arm is with power. Behold his reward is with him and the work before him. This is a prophecy about Yahweh. Behold, Yahweh is coming. But in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus uses Isaiah's prophecy to depict his own coming in terms of Yahweh's coming. Look at, look at the similarities. Behold, we notice that from Isaiah. Behold, instead of the Lord is coming, I am coming. Jesus, pulling that, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, same word that's used in Isaiah 40, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for the work he has done. Again, same, same vocabulary. So essentially, Jesus is describing his own coming in terms reserved for Yahweh in Isaiah 40. And then one more observation 
brings us to our five. Uh, John clarifies the coming of God in Zechariah as the coming of Christ in Revelation. One of Zechariah's main themes is the end-time return of Yahweh to save his people and judge his enemies. And that return is even expressed as Yahweh's coming in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Sing sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. But within the larger prophecy... Yahweh's coming included several end-time events. Now, I'm going to give them to you in order. They're not all in, his, in chronological order as Zechariah. You've got to remember the prophets kind of spoke uh, in kind of a... Uh, uh, kind of painted a picture. Let's, let's say you're looking at a mountain, and it looks like one mountain. But if you turned and all of a sudden turned to the side, there are mountain peaks. They call them the mountain peaks of prophecy. They are chronologically distant and separated from one another, but when you look at them from one angle, they all look like they're one prophecy. So in in Zechariah, you're getting all these prophecies about God's coming and what it includes. I'm going to give you them in chronological order, though, based on the, the New Testament authors. So Yahweh's coming included several end time events. Yahweh will somehow accept a piercing, Zechariah 12, verse 10. That piercing will then lead to the cleansing of his people, Zechariah 13.1. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, Zechariah 2, verse 11. God will also deliver his people in a final battle, Zechariah 12 and 14. God will subject the rebellious nations to judgment. Zechariah 14, and then finally God will transform the earth into a cosmic sanctuary with his ruling presence. Again, Zechariah 14. So all these events are bound up with God's promise. I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst. Now we know from John's gospel that Jesus fulfilled some of these various prophecies already. As God in the flesh... He suffered the soldier piercing his side while he hung on the cross. John 19.37 His death is one that takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Right now, many nations are joining themselves to the Lord because of His sacrifice and because Jesus said, When you lift me up, I will draw all men to Myself. John 12, 32. Now, in that sense, God's final coming has has already begun in Jesus' first coming. Jesus' first coming is but episode one in God's final arrival to save His people and judge the earth. What Revelation clarifies is that Jesus' second coming will complete God's end time coming. Remember God's promise from Zechariah 2.10, I am coming of no little significance is that Jesus echoes those very words throughout Revelation. I am coming. Jesus says it seven times in Revelation. And in Revelation, the number seven indicates completeness. Jesus' sevenfold repetition of I am coming, I am coming, I am coming establishes that His own coming is the very completion of God's coming. 
It's the season finale, so to speak. In fact, whereas Zechariah anticipated Yahweh, well, now it's Jesus who comes to deliver his people in battle. Revelation 19. It's Jesus who subjects the rebellious nations to judgment. Revelation 6. It's Jesus who transforms the earth into a cosmic sanctuary, much like the one described in Zechariah. Revelation 21 and 22. So the point couldn't be clearer. God's final coming to save and to judge becomes Jesus' coming. Jesus' coming fulfills the very mission of God. So this is yet another way Scripture identifies Jesus not simply with God, but as God. His mission, His coming, is God's mission and Coming. And these patterns help us see that the Bible reveals Jesus' deity in more ways than just the direct assertion, Jesus is God. A handful of verses come close to saying that. John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was God. Romans 9.5, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Titus 2.13, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and, and so on. But most of the time, most of the time, the New Testament reveals Jesus in a, matter, in a manner where his divine identity becomes unmistakably and exclusively clear. You see, the title God is rather ambiguous on its own. Christopher Wright notes many ancient Greeks or Romans like many contemporary Hindus, wouldn't balk at such a sentence like Jesus is God, provided the word God is left undefined. I mean, people believe in all kinds of gods. Gods that even appear human on occasion. What difference does it make to say Jesus is God among the pantheon of other gods that people believe in? But the New Testament writers don't stop there, do they? No, what they do is they forge link after link after link after link between Jesus and Yahweh. Not only does Jesus share Yahweh's identity as Lord, Jesus also performs the functions of Yahweh. Jesus, too, is the sole creator, ruler, savior, judge... And that's what we've seen the last few weeks. And then today, Jesus fulfills the very mission of Yahweh. What that does is place Jesus in that category of transcendent uniqueness. Jesus isn't but one religious leader to follow among others, one godly man to imitate among others, one prophet to hear among others. Just take your pick. If he suits you best, then fine. No, Jesus is no mere man. He is the one true God who deserves everybody in the world's allegiance. And when that's your confession, the world will hate you. The world will hate you because Jesus' way is no longer a religious suggestion. It's no longer just a therapeutic pick-me-up. If Jesus is God, then Jesus' way is the only way to live, period. Full stop. If you're out of sync with Jesus, then you're out of sync with God Almighty. 
Jesus' way is God's way. His words are God's words. His works are God's works. You can't pick and choose what you like and dislike about Yahweh. It doesn't go well for people in the Old Testament when that happened. He is the Creator and Covenant Lord. Everybody owes Him everything. And the same is true of Jesus. Something else that we're learning over the past few weeks is how to read the Old Testament with John as well. By forging link after link between Jesus and Yahweh, John teaches us to read the Old Testament with the conviction that Jesus is God. Read the Old Testament with the conviction that Jesus is is God. Now the New Testament also teaches us to read the Old Testament with the conviction that, that Jesus is the new Adam and Jesus is the true Israel or Jesus is the ultimate son or sage or servant or sacrifice and king and so forth. But one further conviction is that Jesus is God the Son. It's through this lens that we can then make sense of God's saving purpose and and how it unfolds throughout history. It's how we understand a text like Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus asks. Because David's son, Jesus, is greater than David because he's God. He's the Lord. It's how we understand Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And it's how Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 says, God said that concerning Jesus. Your throne, O God, in Psalm 45. He said that of the Son, Jesus. It's how Jude chapter 5 can say, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. What? Where does it say that in Exodus? How are they making these connections? Well, they make them because they've witnessed God's glory in Jesus. And he had his glory as of the only son from the father. Therefore, they can draw these conclusions. To read the Old Testament as a follower of Jesus is to read it with the conviction that Jesus is the covenant Lord and Creator. Jesus' Godhood isn't the invention of the church in the third and fourth centuries. Rather, the church sought to describe the way Scripture itself already was speaking about Jesus. He is God, and as God, He fulfills The mission of God. And that mission is unfolding as you listen right now. God's end time mission has already entered its last days. God has come to us in the person of Jesus once already. We celebrate his first advent at this season. And how God became man to save us. But soon will come the season finale. The return of the king is almost here. He's in the process of coming to establish God's kingdom on earth. And that coming of God ought to affect us. 
See, all seven times that Jesus says, I am coming in Revelation, it's not just so that the, the church confesses Jesus is Lord. When Jesus says, I am coming, it's not just kind of this information transfer. Here, now you know this information. These words, I am coming from the mouth of Jesus, is supposed to move God's people to action. In chapter 2, verse 5, and in chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus is talking to the churches. And he says, I am coming to compel the church to repent. To renounce sin and to return to Christ. His coming should move them to return to, to, return to their first love. His words, I am coming, leads them to forsake the world's idols and sexual immorality. In chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming to encourage ongoing faithfulness, boldness to stand for Jesus' name in the face of persecution. You're facing persecution and the threat of death. And those words, I am coming, mean, I'm coming. And that, if, you're, if I'm coming, I'm going to raise you. I'm going to judge your enemies. You will be vindicated with Christ. So it becomes an encouragement. I can be faithful. I can be bold to keep sharing in the face of persecution. In chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says, I am coming to rouse the church from lethargy and keep us watchful for his return while giving ourselves wholly to his work. In chapter 22, verses 7 and 12, Jesus says, I am coming to motivate our obedience to the words of this prophecy, also noting how our works will one day be rewarded. And in chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus says, I am coming, and his words stir up the church to pray, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer? Is that your longing? Does Jesus' coming affect your life in this way? We can't say we know the God of Scripture and not be moved to live for His kingdom. We, we can't say Jesus is Lord and not prepare for His coming. How are you preparing, brothers and sisters? What steps of repentance need to happen today in order to align your life with the coming reign of God are there idols to renounce? Fears, to, fears that are keeping you from obedience? Ways that you've been needing to give yourself more wholly to Jesus' work? People that you've been needing to serve? Maybe there's someone you've been needing to share the gospel with? What does your commitment to the maturity of Jesus' church look like? How are you using your gifts to edify the saints? Perhaps a good start is to ask the Lord for a heart that cries, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And not just because we want to escape the mess, but because we want to see Him. We want to see Him in all of His glory. Beloved, God is on an unstoppable mission. He plans to flood the earth with a knowledge of His glory. Habakkuk 2.14 The earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Jesus Christ has given Himself to that mission, and because He is God, the mission will not fail and cannot fail. And yet, because He also became man for our sake, we find ourselves welcomed through His blood to enjoy the mission with Him. It's not that the church got together one day and said, hey, I know what we can do. Let's have a mission for God. No, it's that God came to us. He was the initiator. He became incarnate for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. And then, welcomed into His presence, now the church can't help but live for God. Can't help but obey and please their Father. Can't help but give herself wholly to this gracious God and mission. So rejoice this Advent season in God's coming in Jesus. Rejoice that He came in a state of humility to reconcile us to God. And rejoice that He's coming again in a state of glory to make all things new. Until then, let's live for His kingdom. I am coming, He says. Let's pray together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.